through their music. Out of the Box with Joey Watson on FBI 94.5. Hello, FBI radio listener. Yes, Joey Watson here. This is Out of the Box, live on your radio, streaming online, and wherever you seek your podcast from. I get to sit down with one person a week and roll through their records from their life and the stories behind them. Today, writer Michael Muhammad Ahmad. Muhammad came of age as a young Muslim man in Western Sydney in the notoriously violent world of Punchball Boys High. This has become the setting and muse for much of his own storytelling, though uh, through it he has become a powerful voice and advocate for Arab Australians. It has also inspired him to become a mentor. He is the founder and director of Sweatshop, a literacy movement in Western Sydney devoted to empowering culturally and linguistically diverse communities through literacy and creative expression. His second book, a work of autobiographical fiction called The Lebs, has copped the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award and is now shortlisted for the Miles Franklin. And today, Mohammed, a warm welcome to Out of the Box. Thank you for having me. And also, Salamu Alaikum, which means peace be upon you in the language of my ancestors. Salamu Alaikum. Why, why is that an important greeting for you? Well, I'm wishing you peace. And I, I, I you know, from your own heritage, you know, we, you have a word like that too, which is shalom, which shalom also means peace. Come. Yeah, yeah, And of I course. think pe- wishing somebody peace is a much more affectionate way of greeting them than saying hello. Yeah, it's got a wonderful tone to it, doesn't it? Um, let's start with the story of migration. How, how did your family come to settle in Australia? This is before the Lebanese Civil War. So it's just before the Lebanese Civil War. It's uh, 1970, so a few years before. Um, it's interesting because when we talk, when we try to talk about our migration, when 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 Lebanese Australians who migrated in the in the seventies talk about it before the civil war, I still think it's important to understand that we emerged from the context of the civil war, that there was a kind of environment brewing in in Lebanon and in the Middle East, largely because of the Arab-Israeli conflict, which created a a, an environment where millions of Arabs had to leave, you know, because of marginalization, poverty, um, uh, tensions, political tensions, racial tensions um, that had made it extremely difficult. So my family came um, from that world uh, in the 1970s to Australia. I should also point out that we are what Peter Dutton three years ago referred to as the mistakes of the Fraser government in that specifically Dutton said second generation Lebanese Australian Muslims are the mistakes of Fraser allowing Lebanese communities into the country in 1970. So that's specifically me he's referring to. And there is a irony to that for me um, as a Arab Australian Muslim writer and academic who plays a very active role in educating young people um, to read, write, and think critically, uh, because I have to constantly live with this background which constructs me as a mistake. Has that been constructed over time, or do you think that that was something that had already been set up in the Australian psyche when you got here? I mean, you grew up in the once working class, not so much anymore, suburb of Alexandria. Um, predominantly a white suburb. Mm. Did you feel that when you were growing up? So a couple of things. Um, it, it, it was back then a predominantly white suburb, and it still is today. But when I was in Alexandria, it was a very poor suburb. And so, um, it, you know, we moved out of the inner west, like a lot of migrants moved out of the inner west, as part of that historical process of gentrification. So you know, the, the, the minority communities create the culture within the space, you know, they build all the nice little restaurants. And then the, the white communities, and there's a lot of research that shows that that process of gentrification starts a lot with artists, but they start to move in to these poorer, trendy suburbs. And then the minority communities move out. You know, they move to places like the Western suburbs, which is what happened to my family. And then um, those places that used to be very poor and diverse become a white middle-class community that is almost inaccessible to the family that I grew up in. Um, and so that's, that's the, the inner West that I grew up in. Um, now, in terms of 
when does that rhetoric, that xenophobic, Islamophobic and racist and white supremacist rhetoric about um, about me and people like me being mistakes, you know? Where does that start? Well, look, if we wanted to be really um, serious about that discussion, then, then it starts with colonization. It starts with the British illegally invading Australia and participating in a systematic process of genocide against the indigenous population. And of course, if you never resolve that issue and you never come to terms with that, which this country hasn't, then any person who is wrong, who looks wrong to you, is going to fit into the the xenophobic fantasy. So what does that look like for you as a child? How does that happen? Well, it, it, it tra- this is what I think is really interesting to 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 deconstruct is and to to kind of be really transparent about when we're talking about the Arab Australian Muslim experience is how it how it transformed pre and post 9/11 so there's there's always been a particular kind of islamophobia and xenophobia that exists in Australia and in the west but something new some kind of new form of anti-Arab and anti-Muslimness begins after the events of September 11. I want to get more to 9-11 a bit later, but maybe now we can go from your move from Alexandria, which you mentioned, to the suburb of Lakemba, mm-hmm. um, a much higher concentration of, of Muslim um, immigrants, um, which obviously affects the culture of the place. How did that uh, affect you in your development as a person? You know, look, when, when I was growing up, those things just happen. You know, my family, we're, we're living in Alexandria and we're a, we're a working class Arab Australian Muslim family, probably below working class. I think in Australia, we don't have much nuance with class, but we're probably welfare. And, and you know, there's 30 of us in this small house in, in, in the inner west. Now, we moved to Lakemba, and it's a fundamentally different experience. I mean, firstly, because the, the properties there are cheaper, all of my uncles and aunties who are t- piled on top of each other can get their own house in, in you know, a couple of streets from each other. So we, we, we got to live in kind of bigger, more comfortable spaces. It's also, like you were pointing out, a more densely populated community with Arab and Muslim immigrants. So... I had um, a stronger, I became more strongly connected to my ancestry and to, to language, you know. Just the first week of living in Lakemba, I started saying Salamu Alaikum, which I hadn't learned for the first 10 years of my life living in Alexandria. So there's a very personal way in which I can talk about this and I experience this. Let's go to some music on that note. What, what can we play first, Mohammed? Well, the first song that I chose is... Uh, called A Change Is Gonna Come by Sam Cooke. And, you know, this ties in, I guess, for me, the reason I, I, I love this song and why I listen to it whenever I'm feeling down or depressed is because it's a, it is, I think, a, a, a pessimistic song but uh, because it, it talks about uh, struggle and marginalization, but it's optimistic at the same time because what it, what it encourages me to believe in is the possibility of transformation and in improvement. But I know 
change gonna come Oh, yes it will Somebody keep telling me don't hang around. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. Then I go to my brother. Say, brother, help me, please. But he winds up knocking me back down on my knees. Oh, there have been times. A Change Is Gonna Come, a soul music classic brought into FBI Radio today by my out-of-the-box guest, Michael Muhammad Ahmad. His Miles Franklin shortlisted book, The Lebs, is published by Hachette. Muhammad, uh, take me to Punchbowl High. Uh, as it was when you were there in the early 2000s. What what did it look like, firstly? Look, it's not just the place. It's you have to also factor in the time. So I was, you know, I'm a second-generation Lebanese-Australian Muslim growing up in the western suburbs of Sydney around the year 2000. I was a teenager, and I remember the the SCAF gang rapes were all over the news media. So this was a, a group of 14 young men who were being regularly labelled by the Australian news media with the terms Lebanese, Middle Eastern and Muslim, uh, even though they're all Australian-born. And even though, of course, the crimes they commit have absolutely nothing to do with Islam. Um, And and that... So that was the era that I had grown up in. Then, not even a year later, this kind of... This stereotype of the Arab Muslim man as a sexual predator... In addition to all the other stereotypes we were hearing, you know, gang, uh, you know, gang, gangsters, drug dealers, you know, drive-by shootings. In addition to all that, then the September 11 attacks took place. And um, this transformed not just the experience for Arabs and Muslims in Australia, but all over the world um, into uh, a kind of Islamophobia now that had made us the global menace and had constructed all of us as potential terrorist suspects. So that's the world that I grew up in, and that's the punch bowl I remember. Now, I'll quickly just say, the the school I went to, Punch Bowl Boys, at that time was surrounded by barbed wires and cameras, and, and, and it was a 95% Arab Australian Muslim community going to the school, and so there was a lot of pressure and tension on those young men. Did violence happen? I mean, obviously in the way it was constructed in the media, and we don't want to overplay that narrative, but did violence happen when you went to school? Was it some yeah, yeah, way yeah. So, internalised? So the, the question, did violence happen, it's, it's, a, it's, not that I, it's not that I'm... It's a tricky question, not because the answer is no, but because it's... it's ex- the, the issue for us was that it's exaggerated and that it's racialized. Did violence happen? Yes. Did it happen because the people in your community were from a Middle Eastern background and Middle Easterners are more prone to violence than other communities? No. Did did gang rapes happen in your community? Yes, absolutely. It was all over the news. I remember it. And I remember growing up in a community and being in an environment where where a kind of uh, an environment of misogyny, sexism and patriarchy could foster sexual assaults. But did they happen because 
of Arab and Muslim communities in Australia. Is that why it happens? No. We see through all the research that these kinds of crimes are socially conditioned crimes, not ethnically conditioned. And that's why you see equally and similarly heinous crimes occurring across all cultural groups from, you know, and the, 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 the rape, torture and murder of Anita Cobby um, by the Murphy brothers to the rape and murder in Stockton of Lily, which was committed by young Anglo-Australian men. So, so yes, uh, the, the world I write about in the lebs and the world I talk about was extremely violent. And I, I, I don't pull my punches. I'm, I'm very open talking about those issues. But, but I, I try to have complex discussions about violence, about homophobia, about racism, about sexism, about, um, can, about, can I... about ten racial tensions, which comes through an intersectional understanding of race, class, gender, and sexuality. Sure. So um, you mentioned so social conditioning as opposed to ra- as opposed to racial or, co- or cultural conditioning. So we can push push that out of the way and say that that's basically a construct of the media. And we've seen the similar thing happening in the UK. We've seen it happening in the US for decades. We've had other people on this show, like Akala, who I, I know is mm-hmm. your next song, talk about um, this uh, in, in a UK context. What was the social conditioning that you were then observing that meant that this that the violence hap- the violence happened or did did happen, whether or not more or less yeah. at all? There's so much evidence to support that position that these are social issues, not cultural or religious ones. Um, class and education play a huge role in how young men understand uh, their world. You are just as likely, for example, to find uh, Muslim Australians who are going to vote yes for same-sex marriage as white Christian Australians if what they have in common is a university education, specifically an arts degree. And similarly, you're very likely to find conservative white Christians who are uneducated who would vote no on the same-sex marriage debate, right? So this has nothing to do with race or religion and has a lot to do with, with education. That's just one example. Now, in the case of something like talking about, you know, the sexually predatory behavior that we saw among young men, it was so interesting that during the SCAF gang rapes, so much of the blame, the white Australian, the blame of the problem was this is a problem of race. This is a problem of Islam and Arabness not being compatible with Western democratic society. And if you were going to go along with that line of thinking, then you have to come to the conclusion that the boys who commit the crimes are being educated by a Muslim and an Arab school of thought but the boys that I grew up around who were deeply misogynistic and who I write about extensively in the lebs they weren't going to the mosque on Fridays they weren't getting their information about women from the pre- the sheikh that's not where the boys that I grew up around who were all Arab and Muslim background were getting were going on Friday I'll tell you where they were going they were going to the football games where one of the icons and leaders in our community was Hazim al-Mazri. They were going to watch Hazim al-Mazri, who has a pretty clean history. You know, he has a pretty dignified and respectful history. But if you look at the amount of white Australian men in the NRL, in football, in Australian football, who have been not just implicit in in sexist, misogynist and patriarchal behaviour, but who have been convicted or who have been charged or accused repeatedly of sexual assaults. These were the role models that my peers were, were, were looking up to, not the local sheikh. Similarly, you know, we weren't listening to Muslim FM when we were driving to school, you know, when our parents were driving us to school. We weren't, you know, listening to the, 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 the sheikh on the, on the radio teaching us um, what to think of women. You know, we were, we were listening to Kyle Sanderlands, 
who's a wealthy, largely uneducated white Australian male, who once asked a 12-year-old girl on live radio if her being raped was the only sexual experience she'd ever had. Um, similarly, I remember, you know, looking at the the rhetoric of our community leaders, and there was a lot of controversy around our community leaders, but look at our prime ministers. I mean, look at the hor horrendous sexism that Julia Gillard experienced from the white men in the Liberal Party. You know, and, and, and people, you know, like people want to say, oh, your community leaders teach you bad things. It's like, yeah, but, but Tony Abbott was my leader for, for quite a number of years. I learned from him just like I learned from the sheik down the street. And so this, to me, is a male problem. It's a, it's a problem that concerns men. And it's a, it's a way in which young men are educated by older men. In, in issues concerning gender. It's, it's, and, and that's just, these are, these are just some examples, but they, I think they're solid examples for how we can talk about the social conditioning of patriarchal, misogynist, and sexist thinking in our communities separate to culture and religion. So with that, I've got to steer us back to some music. What, what can we play for that? How about... I, I go with the second song I chose for you, which is by Tupac Shakur, who's a tremendous influence on young Arab Australian Muslim men from the western Sid suburbs of Sydney in the, the period that I was growing up. And so the song I chose is uh, Changes, which came out in 1996. Come on, come on. I see no changes. Wake up in the morning and I ask myself, it's like worth living, should I blast myself? I'm tired of being poor and even worse, I'm black. My stomach hurts, so I'm looking for a purse to snatch. Give a damn about a Negro Pull a trigger, kill a nigga, he's a hero Get it back to the kids who the hell cares One less hungry mouth on the welfare First ship him, don't let him deal with brothers Give him guns, step back, watch him kill each other It's time to fight back, that's what Huey said Two shots in the dark, now Huey's dead I got love for my brothers But we can never go nowhere unless we share with each other We gotta start making changes Learn to see me as a brother instead of two distant strangers And that's how I was supposed to be How can the devil take a brother if he's close to me? Back to when we played as kids, but then it changed. And that's the way it is. Come on, come on. That's just the way it is. Things will never be the same. That's just the way it is. Oh, yeah. Oh, come on. That's just the way it is. Things will never be the same. Changes. All I see is racist faces. Misplaced hate makes disgrace to racist. We under. I wonder what it takes to make this one better place. Let's see race to waste it. Take the evil out the people, they'll be acting right. Cause both black and white and smoke a crack tonight. And the only time we chill is when we kill each other. It takes skill to be real time to heal each other. And although it seems ever since we ain't ready to see a black president. Uh, it ain't a secret, no conceal the fact. A penitentiary's back and it's filled with blacks. But some things will never change. Try to show another way, but it's staying in the dope game. Now tell me what's a mother to do. Being real don't appeal to the brother in you. You gotta operate the easy way. I made a G today. But you made it in a sleazy way. Sell it back to the kids. I gotta get paid. But hey, well, that's the way it is. Come on. Come on. That's just the way it is. Things will never be the same. That's just the way it is. Changes by Tupac there. If you got those nostalgic tingles, you can thank Michael Mohammed Ahmad, the author of The Lebs, is my guest on Out of the Box, live on your radio online and on podcast wherever you listen to them. Uh, Mohammed, we touched on it earlier, but I was wondering if we could go to the day of September 11. Um, 2001 um, that question is asked a lot of a lot of people in the West but I think I mean it with a different intention when I ask you do you remember where you were or what, what happened that day were you at school so uh, it was not a day where there was um, 
grief or misery or mourning among the young men. So you have to remember that the the community I grew up around um, uh, were all like like the the, the 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 community of my school were all second and third generation Lebanese Australian and Arab Australian Muslim background. That percentage wise, it might have been about ninety percent. Um, and this is in spite of the fact that it's a public school. So it's not a Muslim school. It just happened to have a large percentage of young men from that cultural background. And the day that of 9-11, when, when I arrived at the school, the boys were, and it's tricky, it's hard to find the right word, but, but probably the closest word I can, I can find is celebrating. They were, they were happy, you know? And they were... Their attitude was um, not one of how could this happen, how could um, uh, how could something so evil take place, but rather this was an inevitable outcome of an ongoing conflict. And this is not not it's not that controversial. The celebration is controversial, but the the politics around why those boys were celebrating is not controversial anymore. You can't be taken seriously as a scholar anywhere in the world anymore and try to talk about September 11 without talking about American foreign policy and without talking about the, the imperialist environment that the United States and the West created, which... which um, um, fostered an environment of um, of hatred and and um, and violence on both sides. So I want to tell you a story. The morning of September 11, I remember I was hanging out with a with a very close Palestinian friend, who was very politically active and who 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 brought you know grew up in Australia, but had had been brought up with all the pain that his parents uh, brought with them from the West Bank and, you know, all the pain of being a member of this incredibly marginalised group. And I remember his face, the way he looked at the Australian flag on the morning of September 11, because the flag had been put at half-mast. And he was so angry about it. I remember he was just so frustrated and he didn't say anything. He was just stood in the center of the school quadrangle, frozen and staring at the, um, the flag at half mast. Now, by the end of the day, the principal was so frustrated. He was a white Australian principal. He was so frustrated with the, the way the boys had been carrying on on the, on the morning of September 11. Um, that he brought us all into the library to, to basically lecture us on how disgusting our behavior was. And I remember this Palestinian boy sat in the, in the library with his hand up. And the principal said, we're not taking any questions. And the, the Palestinian boy just ignored the principal and he just kept his hand up. And he, he literally sat there with his hand up for a good hour, waiting for an opportunity to speak. And then finally, after the uh, principal had finished speaking and after he'd let all the other boys speak, so he was deliberately ignoring the Palestinian boy. But after he'd let all the boys speak, he finally said to this Palestinian boy, who in my book I fictionally named Isa, um, he asked Isa, he said, okay, go, what do you want to say? And I will never forget what Isa said because I really think he hit the nail on the head. He said, I've been at this school since 1998. So this was September 11, 2001. So he'd been at the school for three years. He said, I've been at the school since 1998. Over that time, hundreds of thousands of Arabs and Muslims like us have been slaughtered by the West and slaughtered by governments that are supported by Australia. And never once did this school that we go to ever put the flag half-mast, ever show any remorse or sympathy or compassion for the people that we lose in our lives. But then today, 3,000 Americans have died and you want the entire school to mourn. And what he was doing there, and, and, then he, and then he got a kind of big cheer from the, from the, from the other students. 
um, and subsequent, subsequently silenced the principal. And, you know, I, I want to really be clear because I've been accused of being an apologist for Islamic terrorism and Islamic extremism for making this point and telling this story. But, but it's not about making excuses for the crimes that were committed during September 11. There's no, there's, there's no excuses for that. But what the boy Isa was pointing out is the hypocrisy of the West and the hypocrisy that comes with selective mourning. We're saying we care when these people die, but we don't give a shit when these other people die. And it makes sense that for these teenage boys, because that's what they are, they're teenagers, it makes sense that the way they internalize this blowback, this reaction, this inevitable reaction to United States and Australian foreign policy is by saying, I don't give a shit, I don't care, because nobody ever cared about them. What track can we play to that, Mohamed? You know, okay, I, 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 I think this is probably the best track I can give. So, you know, you've, you've mentioned Akala, who um, I think brilliantly, and you'll, you'll really understand just by listening to his music, brilliantly disseminates most of the issues that I'm talking about, you know, and talks about that kind of hypocrisy, but also the, the marginalization the, the, that comes with being a minority in the West. I like you. You're like a tiger. Yes, I grew up an adult in a single-parent family. Been through a little bit of tragedy. Yes, I was around drugs and violence before the day that I started secondary. That's part of it, not half of it. Get the picture, the rest ain't necessary. Growing up, got a little caught up. That ain't even half of my life. Also given the knowledge of self, that is all we actually need to survive. If you saw me, age nine, reading Malcolm, just fine. Teachers still treated me stupid. Students that couldn't speak English, they put me in groups with. The irony is, some of the first man to give me schooling, you were called gangsters. I already explained that we know what the truth is. They used to say, don't be like me Yeah I got a name and don't on the street Nighttime comes, I can't sleep It's the part that rappers don't speak We don't hit the road cause we're thugs Don't come out the room, wanna sell drugs If we got the right guidance and love Would we fight people just like us? How can I knock the hustle to get by? How do you think I ate as a child? Judge no one, done many things wrong Just don't boast about it in songs But listen to my older bars I was just as confused as you probably are But you grow when you learn Trav one, cut One too many man, you know, get caught up One too many man that could have been doctors End up spending the whole life boxed up You learn if you study So set out just to make them money no cover it's all about getting poor people to fight with one another so it's logical that us killing our brothers dissing our mothers is right in line with the dominant philosophy of our time but time is a cycle not a line comes back around you regain your mind to be ready for the energy i challenge in my rhyme remedy the pedigree the jeopardy your mind when the world is left is a crime we can all fight with our brothers over crumbs harder to fight the one who makes guns we can all talk get two dollars harder to be the one who seeks knowledge if we understood economics with no money's nothing think nothing of it money is a means to get wealth not the wealth itself and don't get confused far from broke all that you see me do i own but i won't hang what i make around my neck i know from where that the diamonds came but i do literally own a library that definitely costs more than your chain and businesses and property far from starving i eat quite properly and i don't care just said it for the kids you need to know you're not broke to listen don't know what asset from a liability they've never been shown nor told the difference so they don't change situation richest man in britain is asian that's significant not coincidence asian people build businesses not by flossing going out shopping giving up the culture for everyone's profit who runs bollywood indian people who runs our shit so we shake our ass and dance as if racism just upped and vanished but has it no it's right on course you're beating so bad you're trained to ignore let me not just make sweeping statements give me a second i'll explain it for small amounts of drug possession there's more black people in jail in america than there is for rape and armed robbery and murder all put together you can say they're just locking up tugs imagine they're in prison every middle class kid that had ever held drugs Oh, that's right, that'd be your kids. Bigger than that, what is going on with this? Prison in America's private business. To get paid 50k per year per inmate by the state. Just wait. Also, legally, are allowed to use their prison inmates as slaves. Cheap slave labor. Big corporations, they come out of jail when they can't get a job. So when we celebrate going to jail, we are literally celebrating enslavement. Add to that, that the hood that you live in. Engineered social condition that breeds crime by design. Where do you think you get your... You can say that they're just black, but I like to deal with facts. In the 1920s, you would have found in America, black towns, centers of economics to education to make you proud but some people couldn't bear that the former slaves would not just lie down to the kkk and other hate groups 
Burn those towns to the ground, killing hundreds if it ain't understood. You think you were always living in the hood? It's only been 60 years since the hung blacks and Burnham, and that was so cool. They were your baskets, picnic baskets, even gave kids the day off school. Go see a lynching, have a picnic, it's fun to watch the little monkeys die. And people act a little dysfunctional. You wanna pretend that you don't know why? If your colour means you can be killed and you're powerless to get justice about it. Is it difficult to figure out how you would then end up feeling about it? And that ain't excuses, just dealing with the roots of abuses that make a reality where a generation of young men speak of ourselves as dirt casually. That's America. This Britain, something similar, some different. In this country, the first enslaved were the working class. What's changed? Worst jobs, worst conditions. Most tax, look where you live and yet you go to the pub. Friday night, you will fight with a guy, don't know what for, won't fight with a guy. Shooting a tight who send your kids to die in a war. They don't send the kids to the rich or the politician, it's your kids. The poor British, but they send to go and die in a foreign land. For these wars that you don't understand. Yeah, they say you are British, and that lovely patriotism they feed you. But in reality, you have more in common with immigrants than with your leaders. I know, both sides of my family, black and white, are fed ghetto mentality reality in this system poor people are dirt regardless of shade but with that said let's not pretend that everything is the same when our grandparents came here to britain if you had a criminal record you couldn't get in that ain't protected for all of the stupid stupid abuses they would be living kicked in the teeth stabbed in the streets many times firebombed our houses put feces through our letterbox and of course the cops did so much about it daily up to the 80s people spitting in my palm because i was a goofy baby but of course that has had no effect on why today we are crazy and none of this was for any good reason they were just dark and grieving to ease the guilt now for all of this treatment, constant stereotypes and needed. So if I celebrate how big that my dick is, clips that I'm flipping, clips that I'm sticking, chicks that I'm hitting, I'm playing my position. But if I teach a kid to be a mathematician, messing with the schism, how they gonna fill a prison when materialism is no longer our religion? What do you think we got now in Britain? Just like America, private prison, prison for profit. That mean when your kids go jail, people make money off it. So keep environments that breed crime, build more jails at the same time, market badness to the kids in the rhymes. Long as rich kids ain't dying, it's fine. Get them to the point where some are so lost, they actually believe if they don't celebrate killing themselves. Soft. But it's because their soft was Malcolm soft, was Marley soft. Tell me, was Marcus Garvey soft? Well, was Muhammad Ali soft? Nah, nah, I think not. But they want us to think that the world is cool. Being unbold is all we could do. We don't control the wholesale production, so who benefits from us moving the food? Or thinking there's no way out of old life. But Malcolm X used to hustle on the roadside. And Marcus Garvey organized more than six million people with no Facebook or Twitter. Why is it something you can't equal shit? One of my own homeboys did a 10 straight in the boxing yard. Now, what's he doing? Passing his doctorate. Don't tell me that it's too hard. Who trained you to believe you're inferior? Sung boat ever though in Nigeria are the remains of an ancient moat dug 1,000 years ago. 20 meters wide, 70 down. Round the remains of an ancient town that's 400 square miles around. 400 square miles around. Please, please don't believe me. It was a documentary on BBC, but we ain't studying history. Too busy watching MTV. And MTV said, wear platinum. Now everybody wanna go and wear platinum. And MTV said, pop magnums. Now everybody wanna go and pop magnum. And MTV said, drink prune juice. Was that was a Carla with his fire in the booth. Some truth telling that has become part of internet legend and in in the seat where Akala was only a few weeks ago is the writer Michael Muhammad Ahmad he is my guest on out of the box today uh, Muhammad uh, how early did it dawn on you that you might want to be a writer um this is a question i get asked all the time and i think because I'm so educated, you know, in the sense that I have three degrees. I have an arts degree, an honours degree, and a PhD. Um, people just assume that I grew up in a world where I read a lot and I wrote a lot. The, the problem is, though, that for me and a lot of second-generation um, migrant Australians, uh, we grow up in families that are illiterate. You know, they, you know, my parents both dropped out of high school. Their parents didn't go to school. Um, they came to Australia at a very young age, uh, had to enter the workforce. They didn't, they didn't get a kind of high school, let alone university education, that would create a space for somebody like me to grow up in where there were books around and, and they were available for me to read um, to then also one day say, I want to I be a writer. So I, I try to tell this story, when I tell this story of when I, how I knew I wanted to become a writer and where the inspiration came from, it's deeply ironic because it didn't come from books and literature and reading. It came from literally the opposite. It came from the fact that there was an absence of literacy. I remember being a kid and constantly searching for books in, in, my, in my house, in this, you know, I, I already described that house to you, but you know, in this, working class, welfare class, 
Arab Australian Muslim house where there's 30 relatives living on top of each other and they are all literally illiterate. They're, none of them are educated. None of them can read and write. That's the house I grew up in. And I remember even as young as five looking for things to read, looking for books to read and looking for, um, uh, for stories to, um, to in, in, in indulge in and engage in. And, and I would say that it was a response to that that I became a writer. It was compensating for the absence of literature and literacy that made me um, seek it out as both something to read and to produce myself. So what sort of path did you forge for yourself when you finished school? How did you make that happen? For me, like most young people in Australia, when they fantasize about who they're going to be when they're older, you know, when a teenager's fantasizing, you know, all kinds of dreams can come about. And usually the most fun and exciting thing is something like being a famous actor. And I remember that that's what I wanted to be. I, I wanted to be a Hollywood movie star. And this is before I had any critical awareness, you know? I mean, if you watch Australian television for even 10 minutes, you will quickly work out that there isn't really a place for somebody who looks and acts and speaks and like me and has a name like mine in Australia, you know? But you don't know that at 14. You think that it's all just about your talent and your hard work. And so I had genuinely convinced myself that I could become a Hollywood movie star and I pursued acting. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, just had fantasies of, this is back when, by the way, Jim Carrey was really famous and I thought I could be a comedian. You might've noticed that I'm not a particularly funny guy, but, <laughs> but, but um, you know, I, I really like, Jim Carrey was like my hero when I was a teenager. And I just thought I could be a super funny, you know, normal, universally accepted uh, Hollywood actor. And by the time I was about 17 or 18 and I'd, I'd started going for auditions um, for, for, for TV shows and, and movies in Australia, I very quickly realized that, that the country, uh, that this country, like most countries, was not designed for a, for a young man of an Arab Muslim background to, to have some kind of mainstream you know, film and television representation. Things are improving a little bit with, you know, um, Rami Malek winning the Oscar. Um, but I remember that the only time casting agencies contacted me was when they wanted me to play specifically a Lebanese, Middle Eastern Muslim drug dealer. So not just a drug dealer, which is already problematic, but specifically uh, a, a character that was tied to my cultural identity. And I went for a lot of auditions. I went for hundreds of auditions for these TV shows, shows like, um, and films, like The Combination, Cedar Boys, Underbelly, The Golden Mile, um, uh, East West 101, which I'll, I'll get to in a minute. But there was this kind of short period of, you know, Australian film and TV representations of Arab and Muslim men. It just so happened that they were all about the criminal element. And this, where, this is where East West 101 comes in. So it was the first audition that I got, you know, where a casting agency said, we got you an audition. And I went and I auditioned for the part of a character named Vinnie Mahmoud, who was a drug dealer, of course, a Lebanese drug dealer. I got the part and I, I really thought in my ignorant, unenlightened self that it was my big break, that this was my break into Australian television. And then, you know, from there, it's going to be Hollywood. And I got my whole family together. And when I say my whole family, you've got to remember, like, I'm Lebanese, you know, like, so my whole family is like my hundreds of cousins, my, uh, my dozens of aunties and uncles and my, my siblings and my parents and my grandparents, you know, get them all together. And it's like, oh, on TV, you know. And we all got together and we watched this TV program on SBS, where, where basically I play a character named Vinnie Mahmoud, who gets caught with a bag of drugs in his pants. I mean, it's such a, it's so lame. Like it's literally bulging out of his crotch, this bag of drugs, and then the cops catch it. And then the character Vinnie, who I'm playing, makes a deal with these cops to be an informant against his gang and as a re in, in order to avoid prison time. And then the character I play goes to his gang, they catch him with the 
with the um, the wire that he's wearing, and they, as punishment, they blow off his foot. They stick him in the back of a car, then they drive him around the block and just toss him out onto the street curb, without without his toe. And you know the the, the big line that I had that that was kind of resonating through the show was my foot, my foot, my foot, my foot, because my foot had been blown off. And that's basically where Vinny's story ends. I mean, it was he was so insignificant and he was such a low character that we don't even find out what happens to him. He just gets thrown on the street curb and then the story continues uh, because it was like a buddy cop series. Anyway, after the show, I'll never forget what my cousin said to me. I mean, you know, because there's a kind of, there's still some pride in, in, in making it on TV, even though you're playing such a problematic, stereotyped version of yourself. Um, there's still some pride. So there was some excitement, you know, oh, our, our relative is on TV in this TV show. But I'll never forget what one of my cousins said to me. He said, that was awesome, cuz. You were the lowest piece of shit I've ever seen on TV. And I remember that, you know, I was 19. And I remember when he said that to me, the, it was the moment where I said to myself, I have to tell my own stories. I have to reclaim these narratives. And that's why I became a writer, because what I can do as a writer, which I couldn't do as an actor, is be in control of the stories that are being told about us. What can we play now for that, uh, that in tribute to your, your short-lived acting career and one that... Well, not just the short-lived acting career, but the idea that we as, as self-determined artists can take steps towards empowerment. Sure, that, what that, came you know, out of it, yeah. That, that you know, white, white Australians who tell our stories, and this is their history, this is how they usually tell our stories, that this is the consequences of it, and this is how, how demoralizing it is for me. You know? and, and what is the alternative is, what I was pointing out earlier was the power that I get out of self-determination, saying, as a writer, I tell my own stories and I create positive, but not just positive, more importantly than that, complex portrayals of my community. Um, and it's a perfect segue into this um, song by an Arab-Australian Muslim musician named Matus, who, just like me, is very self-determined in creating complex and positive uh, portrayals of our identity. And so the song that I'm giving you by Matus is awesome. Um, Western Sydney-based artist is called Salam. In a world trying to make them, dollar trying to break them, don't let the devil try to take them. Salam alaikum. Yeah. Salam alaikum. The world changed, just the world trade. Now they're looking at me strange because of my race and my Arab name. Having came from the pain of my people in a world where I'm not treated equal. At a point that feeling was lethal One in the chamber, teenage anger Ain't nobody really understood what I was going through Feeling all the pain and the stress I be showing you so you knew But if you didn't then you never got it Some say that I lost my way but I found it Surrounded by those that are dotted Me off the game homie but I'm back and trotting Over all of they lies You surprised that I made it Well I kept my faith in the sky And looking for a label That really isn't able to allow me To show you my vision like it was cable I break through artists Spitting from my soul I'm never stopping I'm finna get control Creative response every time I bomb And I keep my faith in the Psalms and the Quran Holla at and feel the vibe too And realize exactly what the live do Cause the rest of these rappers is zombies And ain't nobody stomp me Holla at me if you feel Moments of pain Stress with a pinnacle I'm trying to maintain Like canvas, paintbrush Call me Van Gogh Deep inside of my soul Visualize flow In the world trying to make them Dollar trying to break them Don't let the devil try and take them In a world trying to make them, dollar trying to break them, don't let the devil try and take them. Gave my life as a sacrifice, Bohemian Grove. Let him understand what it is when I flow. From the bottom of my soul, used to look up to Hove. Now it's only one God that I look up to so. I ain't trying to sell my soul to get a record deal. I peep the record out and let him know it's really real. Me and Kazi united, we freedom fighters. We split the truth from the soul, so we ignited the light. Let them see it for themselves, cause we trapped in the hell. G-coded the matrix, might as well. The one dollar bill shows what's concealed But I'ma still build for all my people that were going through the daily struggle Number one decision is remain humble No matter what God puts in front of you He only does it just to show you the growth in you That's the reason why I say peace For the moment that I die or be deceased Cause I've been dead before but now I'm breathing Cause I found life and believing 
Now I really never leave them. Trying to maintain teaching no deceivers. Cause they don't really know what's the truth. Cause they blinded. They ain't praying to Jesus. They're praying to a cypher. Lifeless, so we might just give them the real peace, baby, so we can seek truth if you see what it really truly means. So inherit the earth, cause we've been working up the week of the meek, of the meek on the street, on the street, on the block, on the block. What's good, hot? Makes a lot, pace a car to keep it moving. I'm part of the music, but the truth is revolution. In the world trying to make them, dollar trying to break them. Don't let the devil try and take them. Salam alaikum. Salam alaikum. In a world trying to make them, dollar trying to break them. Don't let the devil try and take them. Salam alaikum. Salam by Matus, beats and lyrics from local Sydney duo. Uh, it's Matus and Kazai, and uh, that was brought in today by my guest on Out of the Box. It's uh, Michael Muhammad Ahmed. His book, The Lebs, he's touring it right now. Uh, is uh, autobiographical fiction um, about his uh, high school years at Punchbowl Boys High. Um, uh, Muhammad, I've noticed that your work is laden with references to uh, particularly African-American thinkers, um, some of whom are revolutionary. And in the way even that you've just been talking on, on Out of the Box today, there is a kind of revolutionary feel or a zeal about the, the, both the content and the manner in which you present the, your answers and your information. Um, do you have a, th- a theory of change of your own? Are you trying to drive Australia s- somewhere or s- in some way? Okay, so firstly, let me talk about the influence and the inspiration that comes from the black civil rights struggle. So this is not a unique phenomenon. You see minority groups all over the world identifying strongly with the black struggle. Um, And so you'll see in, in, in my book, The Lebs, and in all my writing and in my own rhetoric, you see just how much the African American uh, subaltern movement has um, been absorbed, internalized, and then reappropriated by young Arab Australian Muslim men in Western Sydney. And the reason why I said this is not unique, um, and it's also not strange, is because the black struggle in the United States, you know, having emerged out of the empire, has been very good at articulating the struggles that uh, are faced because of the phenomenon of white supremacy. So not just in in literature, which of course is my area of expertise, but in music, in sport, in um, in in performance, you know, like acting, uh, and, and in politics, with you know the, the rise of Barack Obama, for example, what you see is that the black struggle has been very successful at confronting the issue of white supremacy and creating a language that we can use to push up against it. And for that reason, it's not strange that so many minority groups all over the world who are experiencing similar forms of marginalization would identify strongly with the language of these incredibly prominent black figures. Um, so that I, I point that out as an answer to why, um, why, this, why the black struggle comes up so much in my work, but also in the, in, in, you know, the music of somebody like um, Matus, who I who I shared earlier, is so heavily inspired by the blacks by the black hip hop movement, for example. Sure. Well, so, so if I think of um, you know Malcolm X, for instance, or the Black Panther Party, who I know you uh, reference a lot, their basic aim was probably nothing short than to dismantle the United States government. Um, what what like uh, I, I know you're not a political practitioner in that sense. Even I'm, though you are laden with politics, I guess I'm getting what I'm getting at is what what do you want to create? Look, let's start with Malcolm X and the Black Panthers. So you know what I would what I what I would say is that when we look at somebody like Malcolm X compared to civil rights figures like Martin Luther King, I think if you studied him closely, you find that he was much better at articulating the the actual problems that were being faced and being much more honest about how serious the problem was and much more honest in what it would take for a solution. You know, there is a kind of whitewashing of the Martin Luther King narrative that has really romanticized it and really made it look like, you know, it's just a, it's just a, 
a problem that can be solved by more white people coming to Bankstown and eating falafels and that, you know, we can all just be friends and get along. It doesn't, and that kind of whitewashing doesn't really confront just how serious and devastating the phenomenon of white supremacy has been on not just African-American communities in the United States, but third world people of color all over the world. And what it takes for transformation. To put it really simply, what you saw from, from, the, from Black Panthers and from Malcolm X and, 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 the, and the Black Muslim movement was a really important way in which we articulate separation. That's very different from segregation. That in, 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 in reality, the way to empower and transform the lives of minority communities is through self-determination, that we are in control of our stories, we are in control of our narratives, we are in control of what happens to our communities, we are in control of our economy, our money, we are in control of our businesses, we are in control of, of educating our communities, that we are, we are leading that, that, that struggle forward and that we are doing it as... Um, we are doing it as individuals who represent our own struggle. And, and, and the reason why this is so important is because what we're fundamentally saying is that you, know, you and I can have a really constructive discussion with each other, but that you, you can't, as, as somebody who is not an Arab Australian Muslim, you can't save me, you can't save my community from our marginalization by just writing a book about us and saying, here you go, now you're liberated. Right, That's a struggle that we need to go through ourselves. We need to go through the process of producing that work and, 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 and reaping the rewards of what it means to have gone through the production of that work. So to get to your question now on what do I, what, what do I seek to achieve, it's really hard to actually answer that question. I, if, if I was going to be really honest, I can't see past the next five minutes. You know, I don't know what I'm actually hoping will be the outcome of my of my goals and the goals of Sweatshop and the goals of, you know, more culturally diverse writing in Australia. What I can say is this, that right now there are some serious problems that affect minority communities in Australia that are created by a xenophobic, Islamophobic, racist, white supremacist structure. And my job right now is to identify it and try to create an environment where at the very least we are talking about it. So with that, what can we play to uh, finish this episode of Out of the Box, Mohammed? Well, I definitely have to um, say that it's probably perfect timing to bring in um, uh, the song that really empowered me and encouraged me to think about transformation um, from as young as I could remember. And that song is talking about a revolution by Tracy Chapman. And on that, I'd like to say thank you so much to my producers, Bree Jones and Nicole DePalo. Mohammed, thank you so much for sharing your story with, uh, with me today. Don't you know that talking about a revolution sounds whisper? Don't you know that talking about a revolution sounds like a whisper? While they're standing in the welfare lines, crying at the doorsteps of those armies of salvation, wasting time in the unemployment lines, sitting around. Get there, yeah. Poor people gonna rise up and take what's there. Don't you know you better run, 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 run,
podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.